past few weeks, we've been trying to take an honest look at who Jesus is, seeking truth about who he is, so that you and I can make an informed decision. If we believe that Jesus is worthy of our worship, if he's worthy of our followership, if he's worthy of our trust. And before we jump into that today, I want to let you know a couple things. First, on June 5th, which is just a couple weeks away, we're going to start a brand new series called Q&A. And what we're hoping to do is answer some questions that you might have from a biblical perspective on a topic. And so hopefully when you came in today, as you picked up the elements for the Lord's Supper, you also picked up one of these cards. It uh, says, I have a question. And on the back, or you can use this QR code right here, you can write a question that you would like to know what the Bible has to say about. And uh, we would love for every person to drop a question. We'll do our best to answer as many of those in the short series that we're doing in the month of June. We'd love to have all these questions back today. So uh, take the next 30 minutes and uh, you come up with some questions. You can drop these cards off in the black boxes by the offering or just uh, hit that QR code and it'll take care of itself. Also, before we jump in, I wanted just to say thank you for the over 100 volunteers who helped out and served in some way yesterday with something we call Love Our City. Yesterday, we had the opportunity to partner with some of our local partners like Community One and Potter's Wheel, and also to see some opportunities that were just um, great opportunities to live in love like Jesus. We built beds for families who don't have beds. We did some a big party for foster families here. Uh, we had several other opportunities where people could just uh, get their hands dirty, expressing their faith in very tangible ways. And so thank you for those who participated. For the rest of you, I wanted you to know that the first week of August, we have a whole week that we're dedicating to love our city, to help train us how to do that on a daily basis. And so you'll want to make sure to be part of that at your next opportunity. Uh, We began this journey into studying Jesus by looking at the incarnation of Jesus. It's just this fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And I challenged you to kind of consider one of those qualities of his deity or his humanity and see if that draws you closer to Jesus or does it repel you from him. We also looked at that Jesus triumphed over temptation. And he offers you and me this assistance to do the same. Also, he offers us grace and mercy when we don't. Last week, we took a look at Jesus's teachings, a sample of his teachings, to try to determine, are his words trustworthy? Are they worthy of us not just listening, but also obeying? Well, today we're going to focus on the miracles performed by Jesus. The Bible records over 36 different miracles attributed to Jesus. The secular and highly respected first century historian named Josephus mentions that Jesus was a miracle worker in addition to being a wise teacher. Josephus also questioned whether the word man represented Jesus enough because he recognized he was more than a man. He was divine. Pontius Pilate who was the Roman governor from year 80, 26 to 36, the person who was solely responsible for issuing a death sentence of Jesus, in his post-crucifixion report back to Rome, 
mentioned that this Jesus who he had just sentenced to death was a miracle worker. In fact, he proposed that this Jesus of Nazareth be included into the collection of Roman gods. But the Senate declined his proposal. We've spoken already in this series that the New Testament writings are highly reliable. And because of that, we've chosen to base our study of Jesus on the life records of Jesus recorded in the Bible. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels record many of the miracles of Jesus, and some are recorded in all four books. John in his account of Jesus' life, seems to base its entire purpose as well as his whole record on the miracles of Jesus. He never uses the word miracle. He actually uses the word sign. And he does that deliberately to point out that these miracles are signs of who Jesus is. They're signs of his power. They, we get clues about who God is and who Jesus is by these miracles. Throughout John's entire record, there are actually seven recorded miracles or signs. And we're going to kind of journey through them today because I think they teach us a lot about who Jesus is. In these signs, we see his identity defined. We see his power displayed. And I also think we see his compassion demonstrated. John records the first miracle of Jesus as the changing of water into wine. Here's the backstory. Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It was near his hometown. Some scholars think that Jesus might have been related to the groom, and that's why they went to the wedding. Most think this because at the wedding feast that usually took place about a week long, something embarrassing happened. They actually ran out of wine. Now, that seems like a simple inconvenience to us in our world today where we could pull out our debit card, hand it to a good friend and say, hey, can you go take care of this, right? But in the ancient world, hospitality was a high value. In fact, weddings were the climax of all social engagements. The groom was responsible for all the wedding preparation and expenses. As the father of two daughters, I think this is a great biblical practice to follow even today, right? Well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, seems somehow involved as a hostess of the event, and she comes to Jesus with this predicament, right? She wants him to take care of it. And his initial reaction, he says, why do you involve me in this? Instead of being lazy or maybe just unwilling to help, I think he seems hesitant for a higher purpose. And we get a cue of that by him saying these words, my time or hour has not yet come. Jehan records Jesus making this similar statement many times throughout his gospel. Actually, in the first 11 or 12 chapters of John, Jesus says this over and over, my time's not come, my hour has not come. And then about chapter 12, there's a pivot. And from the rest of the chapters, Jesus is recorded by John saying, my hour has come. My time has come. And he's pointing to actually his death and his resurrection. Jesus, not reluctantly, but purposefully, he moves into action. He instructs the servants to refill like six stone jars that had been used for washing feet and hands and dirty dishes to refill those with water and to take the master of the banquet 
a sample. Now, the master of the banquet would have been the person embarrassed the most by running out of wine because he was responsible to make sure everything went good. Well, when the servants brought this master of the banquet a sample of what they thought was water, the master of the banquet was shocked. And he went to the groom and he said, wow, this is good stuff. I'm a little shocked, the master said. I don't know why you did this, but most people bring out the, the good wine first. And then after people are high in spirits, they bring out the cheap stuff, right? But you have saved the best for last. The master of the banquet, as well as the groom, they were not sure what had happened. But the servants knew exactly what happened. They had seen a miracle in front of their eyes. This miracle reveals so much about Jesus. First, it reveals his identity as the Son of God, the Messiah. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and Amos spoke about the arrival of the Messiah being associated with flowing wine in abundance, as well as bountiful feasting. This was clearly a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. It also indicates his power. This was no magic trick. Not the quantity of wine that was produced. About 120 to 180 gallons of wine was produced. That's a thousand bottles of the most expensive wine a restaurant could offer because it was the best. That's something only God could do. This miracle also tells us a lot about Jesus' compassion. Nothing is too little of a situation that Jesus doesn't care about. One commentator said that Jesus wiped the egg off the face of two young teenagers on their most special day. I like how John wraps up this miracle. He says this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The next miracle that John records was the healing of a royal official son who was sick. John doesn't record why this official had such faith in Jesus that he could help, but just that he did and that Jesus noticed. When the man began begging Jesus to help, Jesus simply told him, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word, and as he was returning home, his servants met him with the good news that his son was well again. The father asked, About what time did my son get feeling better? And they said, about 1 p.m. yesterday. And that man knew that that was the exact moment that Jesus had said, your son will live. There was something special about Jesus that this royal official recognized as a man of authority himself. It reminds me of another miracle that was performed by Jesus, recorded by Matthew and Luke, when a Roman centurion had a servant who was sick, and he sought Jesus for help. Jesus was planning on going to this Roman centurion's home, but the centurion said to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. You do not need to come under my roof. I don't deserve you to come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I myself am a man of authority, the centurion said. Soldiers are under me. I say to one, go, and they go. I say to one, come, and they come. Jesus responded, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Go, it'll be done just as you have believed it would. And it was. Jesus' power and his compassion are on full display in both of these miracles. Jesus constantly displayed both. We see a fuller picture of who Jesus is by his miracles. 
Jesus demonstrated compassion. He displayed power. And he also revealed his identity again by healing a paralyzed man. If you have a copy of the Bible, why don't you read this with me in John chapter 5. It just has so many cool moments in this moment. I I thought it would be important to see just exactly what John records. John chapter 5, begin reading in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. My copy of the scripture actually has a footnote here that says there, most manuscripts include this additional sentence. It says this, People waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One of those that had been there, an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been there in this condition for such a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This miracle contrasts the work of Jesus with the superstitious, even with the long shot chance of this man getting healed by the angel that visited this location. I know it's easy to be skeptical about uh, miracles, especially when there are so many imposters, so many uh, people who are pretenders or impersonators who claim to have healing power. It can cause us to question God when we see some people healed and others who are not. I think we should all be discerning about spiritual claims and promises made by man. I also believe that we can trust God's power and his compassion even when we don't understand his ways. I don't have an answer for why cancer and Alzheimer's, and physical or intellectual disabilities occur in our world. I don't know why tragedies happen like yesterday in Buffalo, New York, or in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I don't know why there's a war in the Ukraine. But I do know this, that God is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he is wise, that he is compassion. And even in those moments where I don't understand, I choose to trust his wisdom, his heart, to follow him wherever he leads, and to worship him no matter what. Jesus did not choose to eradicate all disease, all sickness, all suffering and pain from our world. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, writes this. 
Jesus, with a few dozen healings and a handful of resurrections from the dead, did little to solve the problem of pain on this planet. That is not why he came. Nevertheless, it was in Jesus' nature to counteract the effects of a fallen world during his time on earth. As he strode through life, Jesus used the supernatural power to set right what was wrong. Every physical healing pointed back to a time in Eden when physical bodies did not go blind, get crippled, or bleed nonstop for 12 years, and also pointed forward to a time of recreation to come. The miracles he did perform, breaking as they did the chains of sickness and death, give a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instill hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is not more satisfied with this earth than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it. We see the identity, the power, the character of God revealed in Jesus, who goes about displaying God's purposes as he brings heaven to earth. And we see this fully in all of his miracles. The next miracle recorded by John is actually recorded in all four Gospels, It's the feeding of the 5,000. Historians actually estimate that there were probably 15 to 20,000 people there on that grassy knoll by the Sea of Galilee. Crowds were following Jesus everywhere he went because they saw in him this messianic fulfillment. They witnessed or heard about the powerful things he was doing. They They were drawn to him because of his character as well as his compassion. In fact, it was his compassion that day that drew him to uh, look on compassion with those who had been listening to him teach all day long. They knew, he knew they were far away from their homes and he knew they were hungry. I see that look in the people's eyes at the 11 a.m. worship gathering every Sunday, right? It was that compassion that caused Jesus to ask Philip and his other disciples, hey, where could we buy some bread for these hungry people? And like the disciples kind of pulled out their pockets like, hey, we got no, nothing to help, big guy. Like it would take a year's wages or more to feed all these people. All we have are these five loaves and two fish, some little boy's lunch. And Jesus said, bring those to me. He gave thanks for them. And then he told the disciples, distribute to every person as much as they would want to eat. And everybody had more than they could want. In fact, there were 12 baskets of leftovers available afterwards. It's the invention of every child's worst nightmare, right? The leftover. Every child groans when mom or dad says, hey, it's leftovers tonight, right? Well, this was proof that Jesus was truly who he said he was, right? In this moment, we see so much about Jesus. The miracle certainly displays his compassion as well as his power, but it also provides a clear cue of his identity. You see, Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just here to provide food for hungry people. The people had an erroneous idea of what the Messiah was all about. They were looking for political or economic freedom. They were looking for someone to punch Rome in the mouth and remove Roman occupation and rule from their Jewish homeland. Only John seems to catch this disconnect. Look what he says in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. 
But Jesus, knowing what they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Yancey writes this, he says, The feeding of the 5,000 illustrates why Jesus, with all supernatural powers at his command, showed such ambivalence toward miracles. They attracted crowds and applause, yes, but rarely encouraged repentance and long-term faith. Jesus was bringing a hard message of obedience and sacrifice, not a sideshow for gawkers and sensation seekers. He was not their kind of Messiah after all. He would not provide bread or circuses on demand. This miracle could have amplified the earlier and yet constant temptation of the devil for Jesus to become king by providing free food and some marvels for everybody to wonder about. But Jesus knew his purpose, and he knew his hour would not be to provide food or even heal sicknesses, but to save souls by dying on the cross. Matthew, Mark, and John all continue this feeding of the 5,000 moment with Jesus sending his disciples back across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And as they did, a terrible storm came up on the water, and they were terrified. I'm not much on storms. I don't know about you. When you see that little ticker across the bottom of the TV, maybe you get a little anxious as well. Well, they were in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night, and they saw someone walking toward them on the water, and now they were freaked out, right? All three Gospels record, excuse me, Matthew is the only one who records that, no, I had that right. Let me just go back to what I was going ready to say. All three record that Jesus spoke first and said to the disciples in the boat, it is me. Matthew says that they thought they were seeing a ghost. And he also is the only one records Peter saying, well, Jesus, if it's you, have me come walk with you on the water. And so Jesus says, well, come on, big guy. He gets out of the boat. Jesus and Peter start walking on the water. Another crazy miracle moment. You probably have read Matthew's account, but if not, it says that Peter started looking around at the winds and the waves. He got terrified and he started to sink. And Jesus reached down and grabbed him by the hand, pulled him back up. And I like a little Bible cartoon that I used to watch. They both walked back on the water, and got back into the boat. It says when Jesus got back in the boat, the winds and the waves calmed down. Andrew Cole, or excuse me, Andre Cole, is an internationally known magician. Actually, he's best known as an illusionist, which means he pulls some hand uh, and sight tricks on stage that, you know, amaze people, not just in our country, but really he's traveled all over the world. He's most famous for making a 15-foot Statue of Liberty disappear on stage through an illusion. Well, people started watching his illusions, and they thought, this is the guy who could probably put a big dent in the tricks that Jesus did while he was here on earth. And so there's a group of fellow illusionists who hired Andre to reenact Jesus' walking on the water moment. For months upon months, Andre and a team of illusionists tried to reenact or re-portray Jesus walking on the water. And after months and months of preparation, they realized there was no possible way possible. And so they canceled the event and the project. Andre Cole writes, he says, of all the technology we have in the 21st century, we still can't pull off the things that Jesus did when he walked here on earth. That moment 
kind of was a turning point for Andre Cole. In fact, from that moment, he began pursuing all of the miracles of Jesus to see if he could poke a hole in any of them. Guess what happened? He moved from skeptic to believer. And now in many of his shows, he passes out fish and bread at the end of the show as a testimony to what he has found to be true, that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, on another occasion, Jesus was in a boat. He was with his disciples in the boat, but he was asleep. And another storm came up on the water that day, and the disciples woke Jesus up and said, do you not care that we're going to die? And Jesus just stood up. I think he raised his hands like this and said, peace, be still. And the storms stopped. The disciples were all amazed, and they asked, who is this person that both the winds and the waves obey? And the answer to that rhetorical question is that Jesus is the very Son of God. God's presence, as well as his power, were demonstrated fully in Jesus. And by such miracles, Jesus was sought to establish as well as to strengthen the faith of his disciples. Jesus performed many miracles. He he healed many people in many different ways. Each demonstrated his compassion, his power, as well as revealed his identity. And people began to understand the heart of God, God's purposes for humankind, and how to be part of the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. Miracles often created teaching moments for those who were looking to Jesus to illustrate these truths and realities. One time, Jesus' disciples encountered a man who was known to be born, from, uh, born blind, blind from birth. They asked Jesus an interesting question. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's in this condition? Maybe you've asked a similar question. Maybe you've asked a question like that when your life has been turned upside down or someone that you love's life has been turned upside down. Maybe you've asked that question When life hasn't worked out like you wanted it to or thought it would, you question God's compassion, his protection, his care. You might even doubt his existence or that his goodness. Or you might just feel plumb responsible. I love how Jesus answers the disciples' question. Look what he says. It's translated this way in the message. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I'm in the world, Jesus says, there is plenty of light, for I am the world's light. Jesus is making a strong declaration of his identity, of his power, and his compassion. He's speaking to the real situation in the world, the darkness of sin and the blindness it causes. But he's also offering hope through the light that he brings and sight that is by faith. Jesus then proceeds to illustrate this by spitting on the ground, making some mud, and putting that mud on the blind man's eyes. And then he instructed him to go wash in a pool, the pool of Siloam. In this moment, many people see a parallel with God taking the dust of the earth and forming the very first man. It could be a moment where we once again see that Jesus is fully God. You know, the work of God is in creating as well as in recreating. 
He created humankind in perfection in the garden, and he has restored that perfection through the sending of Jesus as Messiah and Savior. Restoring physical sight actually represented ultimately the spiritual restoration that God does. In this moment, like several others, the religious leaders got a little sideways with Jesus because this moment happened on a Sabbath. They accused Jesus of sinning because he was working on the Sabbath. And they put the man that he had healed through the ringer, trying to get them, him to go along with their accusations against Jesus. The miracles that Jesus performed are a testimony to his identity, his power, and his compassion. And those who experienced it typically boldly testify. And I think in this moment, you can see the spiritual growth happening in this man who was blind, but now is physically able to see. What's interesting is the man never saw Jesus himself until after he was healed and after being put through these accusations and this uh, craziness by the religious leaders. And then he actually met Jesus. It says Jesus went looking for him. I love that. And when he met Jesus and had an encounter with Jesus, he said, I believe in you. And he worshiped him. I believe that if you slow down, if you stop, if you just start looking around you, you might actually see how God is at work. Not just in this world around you, but actually maybe in your very life as well. Sometimes it's in the small and simple things, and sometimes it's in the mysterious, in the miraculous, in the profound. God is capable of both. But his ultimate concern is for you to know who he is and to have faith in him. He comes to bring you life here and now and eternal life with him forever. And his miracles are signs to who he is and how he is working in the world and in your life as well. One last miracle recorded by John is really the culmination of all the miracles put together. Lazarus, a close friend of Jesus, got sick, and his family sent word to Jesus. Jesus seems to delay on purpose. He actually told his disciples, Lazarus is not going to die, but he is sick so that God's glory may be revealed, so that God's son may be glorified through it. That might sound a little aloof, maybe a little not compassionate. It might seem a little pretentious, even a little procrastinating. Lazarus does die. And when Jesus arrives at his home, Lazarus' sisters take him to task, and they say, if you would have come, our brother wouldn't have died. Maybe you've asked a similar question. God, I mean, if you're really that good, if you're really that compassionate, then why did you let my brother die? Maybe you've asked that question like I have. I want you to know that those questions are fair and they're okay to ask God. He's big enough to hear our heart's greatest, greatest concerns. Jesus, in response, makes a very powerful declaration, a statement about his identity, his power, and even his compassion. And he said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus immediately, 
He had been lying dead for four days, and Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come out, and he did. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Theologian Charles Barkley says, it ain't bragging if you can pack it up, and Jesus did. Jesus said, here's the reality. The glory of God is not that Lazarus came back to life. You know how I know that? Because Lazarus died again. I mean, it wasn't an all-time thing. He lived, he died, he lived again, he died again, at least here on this earth. The glory of Jesus that he was referring to was in his identity as the resurrection and the life, in his power to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And that's the most compassionate thing that Jesus could ever do. You see, the miracle of all miracles is in the redeeming work that Jesus does in our lives, restoring us back to our intended state, in the image of God, whole, perfect, in fellowship with God. Sin has left us embarrassed, left us sick, left us lame, hungry, in the middle of a storm, spiritually blind and dead, all the same conditions that we've seen Jesus have authority over in all of these miracles today. But because of who Jesus is, that he's Messiah, he's Savior, and he's Lord, because because of his power over sin and death, and because of his compassionate love for us, we can be confident of eternal life with him. And that's why we worship him, because of who Jesus is. That's why we follow him, because of his power. And that's why we trust him, because of his compassion. I love how John wraps up his gospel. He says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So do you believe? I don't want you to look at miracles as this systematic category of how God does work or should always work. I want you to see these miracles as impressionistic pictures of the life of Jesus. I want you to look at these signs of his identity, of his compassion, of his power, and I hope that you'll choose to decide to worship him, to follow him, and to trust him. Maybe you're here today, and you're waiting on a miracle. Maybe there's something going on in your life or in the life of those around you that you're waiting for God to show up and show his compassion, his power, his identity. I want you to know that I still believe that God can do miracles. I've seen them in my own life. I've seen them in the lives of others. And the same God that we read about in the Bible is still the same God today. He is highly capable. Why God chooses to heal some and not others, why God chooses to allow some things to happen and prevents others, I do not know. But I know that God is wise. I know that God is trustworthy. I know that God is compassionate. I know that he's generous. I also know that he is sovereign. And even when I can't follow his ways, I still trust his heart. And I believe that you can too. Let's pray together. God, thank you for demonstrating in miraculous ways who you are, 
how much you love us and your power. God, I have seen those things with my own eyes. I've read about them in the Bible, and I believe that you're not done yet. So God, my prayer first is a prayer of worship. I thank you for being the God who created this world. I thank you for being the God who sustains this world. I thank you for being the God who doesn't operate in natural ways and being even mysterious about how you work. That all draws me to worship you. And God, I'm grateful that you care. I worship you because even running out of wine at one of a million weddings happening in the first century, you chose to show up and respond. It tells me that there's nothing not a single hair on my head, not a a single thing about my life that you're not concerned with. And I worship you for that. I thank you for caring that much, not just about me, but for every person you have created. God, I also praise you for doing the most miraculous thing that any of us could ever point to, and that is wrapping yourself in human flesh, dying on a cross for people who, deserve to die instead, and then conquering sin and death by raising from the grave. God, it's in that that we find our greatest need met. And because you didn't spare Jesus and because he conquered sin and death, we are confident, even when we can't trace your hand, that your heart is worthy of our trust. God, my prayer specifically is for those today who are waiting for a miracle in their life. Maybe it's a health need. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe it's a relational need. I'm sure there are spiritual needs out there, God. And I pray they would find you worthy of their worship, their trust, their followership, God, even in those hard moments. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.